All right, y'all, it's spring, and you know what that means. It's time to start planning our summer festival traveling. Yep, it's time to get into my Airbnb bag cross-country, a.k.a. uh, time to visit my homes all across the country. And you know what I never think about? Why not list my own spot on Airbnb and host some folks at my house? I mean, my house is cute. Yes, let's make money while we're spending money. Just trying to help you out, man, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello. How you doing? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to... Questlove Supreme. I had to think for one second exactly where were we. I'm your host, Questlove. Thank you for joining us yet again here with uh, my squid odd. What's up, uh, Pay Build? How, how are you? Man, it's a good day. Can't complain. Summer. Summer's good so far. Can't complain. Okay. Kids are happy. Camp is in session. Life is good. Camp's in session? Camp is in session. Summer camp is summer camp. Oh, but cu- summer camp in the crib, right? No, they go away. Not like you sent them away. No, 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 no. Like away, away, away. Just like during the day, away. I would call that summer school, but you know. (laughs) Ah! And when they come home, I de-louse them like a prison movie. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) I see that. Uh, How's it going, uh, Sugar Steve? Fresh from your uh, season five. Uh, That's right. Yep, everything's cool. I mean. Boss called me into work today, so there's that. And uh, but other than that, doing good. Horrible boss you have there. Sorry. Anyway, he's all right. <laughs> Why? Well, yeah, everything's fine. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm good. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yes, I can Uh-oh. hear you loud and clear, Laya. I'm Let's gonna turn that down. Press the mute button. I know what that means. Okay. Right, right, right. Ah. <laughs> How's it going, Laya? Oh, it's going good. You mean am I muted? No, you. No. We can hear you now. <laughs> Okay. All right. No, yeah, just, it's going good. I mean, I'm excited to talk uh, some good Philly music and whatnot. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of which, ladies and gentlemen, um, speaking of Philly music, our guest today is the pride of the city of Detroit, Michigan. <laughs> Via <laughs> Philadelphia. Right. <laughs> Via Philadelphia. Um, yeah. Along with uh, her sisters, uh, the great Brenda and Valerie Jones, I will say that our guest today um, along with her two sisters, probably uh, the go-to background combo trio in the mid-70s. Uh, they kind of dominated that platform, sort of similar to how uh, Sissy Houston and the Sweet Inspirations once did in the mid, mid to late 60s for many luminaries from Aretha Franklin, uh, Lou Rawls, Teddy Pendergrass, Linda Clifford, Tower Power, uh, of course, Diana Ross, where I first heard 
her group's name mentioned. Well, okay. Diana called them the Jones sisters <laughs> right. on that live record. Um, but anyway, they, they signed, they came to my hometown of Philadelphia uh, around 79, uh, worked under the, the mighty Philadelphia International Records Empire, um, releasing hit after iconic hit uh, from the, the Hove sampled, uh, you're going to make me love somebody else uh, to like dance turn into romance uh, to my all time favorite nights over Egypt to uh, who can I run to so many to name. Also, I'll say that uh, our guest today enjoyed her uh, first uh, number one hit single. Uh, Do you get enough love? Uh, 86. Two years after uh, she left for a solo career and uh, with six LPs under her belt with her family two solo records. Our guest is still holding the uh, the mantle and and kind of the legacy of of the jones girls in her hands ladies and gentlemen please welcome to quest love supreme the one and only shirley jones thank you well thank you thank you hey how are you i i'm fine i'm doing really good staying um, in the house which is the safest place right now <laughs> exactly that's that's, yes. <laughs> that's yes. all we're doing staying in the house you know um no i thank you for doing this i i will say that um after a lot of stalking on Instagram and uh, social media, I, I was happy. I was I was fortunate enough to get your attention to come and, and, and join us on the, the show because uh, we're, I'm so we're happy. Yeah, I'm so happy because, I mean, I'm just I'm a fan. So I'm fanning out right now. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. That. You and the roots. And I mean, the Tonight Show, we used to just sit there and watch the nights. We're going to one day we're going to be on the Tonight Show. This is back when Johnny Carson was. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm a huge fan. Well, I mean, I'm a fan of yours as well. Of course, like I've known, you know, as a Philadelphia and I've known um, I've learned of your history after you came to Philadelphia to, uh, to sign to the label. But um, I'm really curious about that. The, the first part of your career um, in Detroit, Michigan. Um, what part what part of Detroit did you guys grow up in? We grew up on the west side, you know, it's east side and west side, west side. We went to Central High School. That's the nice part of Detroit, right? (laughs) No, (laughs) absolutely not. No, okay. See, I'm told by a lot of, I'm I'm told by Detroit luminaries that if someone's from the east side, I should watch my wallet. But if someone's from the west side, then, you know, they they might have finished high school. Right. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, it's an okay. It's okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. So um, can you. Well, OK, I always start with what was your first musical memory? My first musical memory was me and my mom singing just the two of us. Once she found out that I could sing at like six years old, she was a um, very popular gospel singer back in the Detroit area, Mary Frazier Jones. Okay. In fact, she was the first black gospel singer that RCA Records, they signed my mother to gospel to the gospel label the same day they signed little richard so yeah and once she discovered that i could sing i remember going around to these different churches singing just the two of us when it was just she and i okay when you say just the two of us i'm instantly thinking like wait yeah (laughs) there's another just the two of us right (laughs) (laughs) it's a gospel song just the two of us okay i see in your in the lineup of your sisters, where do you fall? Are you the I'm the oldest. Okay. You're the, the oldest, oldest sister. Yes. So 
and was it just you three in the household or did you have other siblings? No, through my mother and father's union, it's just the three of us. But there are like five other kids by three other different women okay. that, you know, wives and, and you know, not wives. Yeah, I, <laughs> he was hey, he was a minister, too. Like, that's yeah. all. Yo, you, <laughs> you didn't even have to say that. I was just saying, hey, was your dad a preacher? Yes, yeah. he, yes, he was. <laughs> Yes, my that mother. My mother was the second wife, or second, maybe third. Okay, there were okay. five. Yeah, I feel you. I feel you. Um, so, basically, what was, what was the your your childhood like? Um, because I'm always curious as to how, especially when groups that I admire, sort of unfold in the '70s. They all seem to have the same kind of narrative, which is that they start in gospel music. Mm -hmm. And I'm always curious to see how they are kind of able to unwrap themselves out of gospel. Like some answers are like, you know, it was, it was a controversial thing to start singing secular and some, you know, they were embraced by their, their church and their family and whatnot. But what was your relationship with music when you were growing up? Like, were you allowed to listen to both or just gospel in the house? Oh no, she she did. A, she allowed us to listen to both. It was uh, very difficult after being with her because we were traveling around Detroit. You know, Detroit's the music city, Motown, but as well as gospel. But Detroit's choirs were known all over the world. Aretha Franklin's father, his church. Mm -hmm. So we were traveling that circuit around Detroit, Chicago and singing behind my mother. My mother was also the music director at Russell Street Baptist Church, so she knew voices. Oh, wow. And I credit our harmonies and our vocalizing our, to my mother. My mother okay. rehearsed us, oh my goodness, from the time I was about seven or eight and Brenda and Valerie were, were stair steps. So mm -hmm. once she realized what she had, she rehearsed us at least maybe four or five times a week. Uh, other kids be out there playing and we'd be put out there trying to play. But my godmother who lived across the street was the piano player. Mm -hmm. We always had a piano in our home because we studied piano. We're, we all play piano. And my mother was like, okay, you guys come in. We're going to rehearse. She practiced our voices. She taught us how to lay back if the, if the note is too overpowering, she taught us diction. Um, so I credit everything to her from teaching us early on. And then being on the same circuit as like the Clark sisters, the wine is back then, man, when Holland Joja Holland reached out and wanted us to start to try to come to their label, to first to sing oh, background. Oh, she, yeah. yes, she, a music merchant too. Right. Yeah. Oh, okay. She, yeah, my mother was just so, it took a lot of persuading, but she finally let us do it. I'm curious as to, okay, as, as to the training, because the, the thing is, is that um, in listening to your records, I noticed that um, you guys spend an equal amount of time singing in unison. Yes. In addition to your harmonies. And I always wanted to know what was the because that was an unusual trademark. And I guess as a non-singer, like I'm a producer who's a non-singer. So I would automatically think, well, coming out the gate, everyone sings in harmony. But you guys had a really unusual process where you all sing together 
So it was and always it, like one voice to me. Exactly. And that when my mother was training us, that's what she was. She would always grill us. And, and she'd be like, I want you, Shirley, to pull back or Brenda, I need you to come up more. Even when we're doing unison, she would say, because the ultimate goal is for your harmonies and your unisons to sound like a lead to sound like a lead. And she drilled at that in us. And and one of the, the best memories that I have with my sisters is when it was just the three of us, after we started doing background for different people, when it was just the three of us together, no boyfriends, no, you know, nobody, mm-hmm. girl, girlfriends hanging around with us, we would practice that because my mother had drilled it in us, we would practice that, whether we were doing background for somebody or working on our own project, it had to be right. And then Valerie, the youngest sister, she has, uh, she was blessed with near perfect pitch. So of course she would always be like, that doesn't sound right, you're too sharp, Shirley, get the, you know. So we had so much fun practicing because we always strove to be, for our sound to be perfect, whether we were singing unison, harmony, singing behind Aretha Franklin or doing a Jones Girls project. Well, I know that you were always in the gospel choir, but you know, I know that you're in Detroit, which even after they long, you know, migrated to, Los Angeles, I'm certain that, you know, still with Luminary still there, like Funkadelic and whatnot, like what were your what was the 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 social interaction with other notable members of the Detroit musical community for you? Like who was there a group of people that you hung with or notable people that we would know? Um, Not really. We um, well, when we went to Music Merchant to Holland Georgia Holland's label, mm-hmm. we were doing background for like Chairman of the Board, uh, Frida Payne, Frida Payne, okay. Honey Cone. Um, and at that time, we were, I guess, maybe 13, 14. In fact, when I was watching uh, uh, Summer of Soul, it took me way back. And I was like, oh my God, uh, half of those people that were involved in that, we either met, we either worked with. And I said, mm-hmm. wow, what a blessing. Because at that time in 69, we were like 13. 12, 13 years old, and we had just started uh, doing background at that age for Holland Dozier Holland because they saw us on a gospel TV show in Detroit, Mm -hmm. and that was when we begged my mother, oh, this is Holland Dozier Holland Motown, please let us do background. They just, it's just background, ma, just background. (laughs) No, you know, it's not gospel background, but please, ma, please. So she finally let let us do it. But the stipulation was she had to be there. She was at every session from the time I was 13 and we started doing it until I was 18, grown. (laughs) I, I I know that since, you know, Ray Charles introducing quote unquote secular non-gospel lyrics to gospel music that that's always been an issue with the church and whatnot. Um, But obviously you're coming from a younger generation um, that isn't so married to what your parents and grandparents sort of subscribe to. So, you know, how, who, who was your, your North star as far as like, who did you grow up idolizing? Like who's, who's the voice that you, 
long to be sort of not in a non-gospel way like who were you listening to uh, on the radio on the radio uh, all of motown yeah the the temptations the four tops uh but the but the group that we idolized and used to have my mom make outfits for of course was the supremes we absolutely idolized the supremes we wanted to be like the Supremes. Really? <laughs> the Abs- yes, we wanted to be like the Supremes. Okay, so we we've asked another person that's once worked with Diana Ross <laughs> what that experience was like. The story was humorous. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, they're talking about Sheila E's uh, rather tense time uh, under a camp. What was it? What was it like? And of course, I'm skipping. I want to know about all your background stuff, but. What what was it like to finally land that job? It was it was amazing. Um, we actually uh, we were perfectly happy. We had just moved to Detroit to L.A. with McKinley Jackson. He was managing us at the time, okay. and we were perfectly happy doing background sessions because we were doing like three and four a day. It was either us or the Waters that people wanted to do their oh, the background waters. back then oh yeah well okay. <laughs> those are my buddies yeah it was either us or them that that's who we were those premier groups for background singing back okay. then and mckinley said well you know diana's um auditioning for some singers and she's been turning everybody down and you know and i and he said you guys want to try we like diana yeah i mean you know we're from detroit hey let's give it a shot and so we went up there actually thinking we were singing for Gil Askey, her music director, and her road manager, Don Peak, up Lower Canyon somewhere. And we went up there and McKinley started playing. We had rehearsed Ain't No Mountain High Enough and reach out and touch somebody's hand for our audition. And right in the middle of singing, who comes down the hall but Diana Ross. <laughs> and yeah, and the, the, the only words out of her mouth was, you guys are terrific. Can you get passports? We're going to London. And we, of course, you know, we were like, yeah, we can go to London. And But we had to work out some things on our contract because of our background singing, which she did allow. We traveled seven months of the year with her. And then when she was on hiatus, she did allow us to keep our background singing career for other artists. Um, okay. So she, been, held you on reta- she held you on retainer, but you were allowed to. We were allowed to sing, right? But we were still getting, you know, we were getting half of our paycheck right. when she was when she wasn't working, but okay. she still allowed us to to do our singing, our background oh, singing. Um, and over the years, I have defended and and said said so many people have said, "What was she like?" I hear, you know, she's this, she's that, and the other. I said, "Let me just tell you one thing." Mm-hmm. She was the hottest entertainer in the world back mm-hmm. in the 70s. Absolutely nobody was bigger than Diana Ross, except maybe Frank Sinatra. Mm-hmm. And she was a perfectionist. She was a female. And she was demanding. She demanded that her, from her band to her singers to be as into the show and rehearse and be on top of your gig as she was. And because that was it drilled in us and that's what we did anyway, um, she was absolutely one of the best people to work for. And she was so concerned for, for us because up until we went to London with her, the only places we had been was Detroit, 
surrounding areas and then mm -hmm. California. Um, and she loved and respected our sound so much that after the European tour is when she came to us, she was getting ready to do her yearly, twice a year residency at Caesars Palace. And she came to us and said, you know, you girls are too good to be singing background behind me or anybody else mm. forever. So, you know, I change clothes at least five times in my show. I want you to get a song together and I want you to sing it. I'm going to bring you out, the Jones sisters, and I'm going to introduce you to the world. And that's actually, she did that. We chose If I Ever Lose This Heaven from Quincy Jones' album that was right. hot back then. And uh, that's how we got with Gamble and Huff uh, at the wow. Schubert Theater. Yeah, <laughs> the Schubert, oh, the Schubert. Theater. Yeah, yeah, the Schubert Theater. And she called us, and Cynthia Biggs and Dexter Wanzell, they were in the audience, and they said all they could think about and look at during the whole show was us. They kept saying, you hear those girls? You hear her background singers? <laughs> They're tearing it up. And Gamble and Huff came backstage, and they said, you guys are terrific. Um, are you signed with anybody? And we're like, no. And we're like, oh, my God, Gamble and Huff asking us if we're signed with anybody. <laughs> and uh, so we went back to L.A., and within a month, we uh, had our attorneys work. We worked out the deal. And within two months, we were flown to Philadelphia to work on that first Jones Girls album. Wow. Yes. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. Yo, what's up? This is Fonte, Fontigolo from Team Supreme. Black representation in media is very important to me. I think it's important to have our stories told by people who look like us and who have shared in our common experiences. Some of my earliest influences were Donnie Simpson. Uh, I would also say Tom Joyner, Angela Stribling, uh, Sherry Carter. They were just people who told our stories with a lot of class and dignity and were big inspirations to me. The next generation of influential Black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast, The Center Black Voices. It's NPR Noir. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. 
In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. Wait a minute. I always wanted to know, was this was this the tour where she would um it would start with the 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 video thing with the guys carrying her over? No, no, this was before then. Okay, because I, that... I always wanted to know how she did that illusion. No. And okay. I, I was a kid when I see it like a long time ago, but yeah. <laughs> wow. Can you also talk about like just the gig with her and how it was different than other background gigs as far as like she said she changed her clothes five times. Did you guys get to change your clothes? Did you have the same outfit you had to wear every night? Or what because it was Diana Ross, y'all had like a nice rotation. And what did she require before every show as far as rehearsal and stuff like that? It's the comparison to everybody else you work for. Uh, with her being a perfectionist, we rehearsed a lot before we would go out uh, on tour uh, with her. I mean, we rehearsed a lot. And yes, she did curse. She would come in there. And if you if the band, she never had to curse at us because we were going to be on top of our game. But <laughs> she would she would curse them out. And I and you know, and I often tell people I said, now, if she were a man, like Frank Sinatra coming out cursing because somebody wasn't doing their absolute best and she felt that they should be, he'd be applauded. He would be applauded and said, oh, he's just such a strong individual. He's He'd make sure that, you know, but because she's a woman and she was that demanding at that time, you know, women weren't supposed to, yeah. you know, come. If you don't weren't doing your job, you, you were supposed to be demure and say, well, would you please, you know, she, opened that door she would come in so there cursing ways. like a sailor. Yeah. Oh, yeah. For Beyonce, it makes me think of Beyonce and who Beyonce is allowed to be today. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I give I give I give her kudos because she was demanding. Yes, she was, but she was also she would she would also make sure that she was doing the you know as far as rehearsing too. She was always always immaculate, Im impeccable. I, uh, two people that I learned the most from as far as entertaining myself, I always say is Diana Ross and Eddie LeVert from the OJs because they are show people, Ooh. absolutely show people. I can't wait to hear what you learn from Eddie. Can I, yeah, I, <laughs> want, I want to know for you, or is it a, a thing where the grass is greener on the other side? Do you prefer studio sessions? Or do you prefer uh, traveling? This, th I'm talking in strictly in terms of, of your days as a background singer. As a background singer, I prefer being in the studio. Yeah, I prefer being in the studio because I'm more of a... Uh, like well when we were traveling doing background for her that was exciting because it, that mm -hmm. was the first time we you know were were traveling doing background and making money mm -hmm. um but now i mean i prefer 
the doing studio work versus traveling, singing background for okay. someone. Isn't it a bigger pressure, though, in the studio? Because I'm almost certain that there's, you know, there's really not enough time for you to you borderline have to catch it and perfect it in, you know, in a short amount of time, I would assume. Correct. Yeah. As far in real, as in real time. nailing backgrounds. Yeah. In, in real time. That's one of the reasons why uh, so many people wanted us to do background, because they knew that we were going to rehearse so much so that when we got in the studio, you know, time is money. We we would knock that stuff out just like that. That's why some some sometimes we would have two and three sessions a day because we were able to we would rehearse and practice our parts for whoever and to make sure that when we went in the studio, bam, 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 we could do it. And, you know, back in the day, you're talking about eight tracks and you're talking about not being able to sing one little part and then they fly it through the song. You had to sing that exact same way, four and five, you know, three to double it. And and uh, so and I think that's one of the reasons why the artists today, the today don't as far as live performances, they cannot do it like us that were trained to have to sing a song all the way through three and four different times to stack that harmony and sound the exact same way each time. <laughs> right, I see, I agree, I agree with you. Curious, who were your peers, or I don't wanna say competitors, but who were the, the peers who, if you can't get the Jones sisters, you know we should call so-and-so? The Waters. The water. That was it. Just, the that water. was it. It was just y'all yeah. too. And that was us in California for the longest. Yeah, that was it. I'm sorry, Amir. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So what um I know you, you mentioned working under Holidoza Holland. When you came to Los Angeles, what year was that? We went to Los Angeles in nineteen seventy five. Yeah, about seventy five, seventy six. That's when Motown moved, and then you know they had given Holland Dozier Holland the Invictus and the Music Merchant labels. Right. And uh, I think Motown moved what in seventy three, seventy four, and then those like McKinley and Holland Dozier Holland moved out. I think seventy five. So it was just basically everyone in Detroit was migrating to Los Angeles, and we might as well follow suit and follow them as well. And follow them exactly, exactly. I see. Could you tell me like what other notable? acts were you singing background for that we might not be aware of? Uh, Helen Reddy, uh, Cher. What songs? Uh, yeah, um, Helen Reddy, oh my God, They somebody just posted it the other day. I forgot that song that we did for her. We did the entire album because she just passed, I think, recently, and someone mm -hmm. posted it. Um, and uh, Cher. For I Cher, think, like Half Read or Take Me Home or... I forgot what song, it, but the song that we did do uh, for Cher, I don't think it made the album. Okay. But we did okay. a session. We did a session because we did two songs with her and they never met. I don't think they made the album. Now, somebody's okay. going to probably prove me wrong and, and post it, <laughs> you know. Okay. <laughs> I know that you, you, you've done background on some notable Philly International songs as well. So am I to assume that you're, you're basically all the female voices that I hear on like, you'll never find another love like mine. And those, those songs as well, like with Lou Rawls and. Now we did do um, Lou Rawls album. There was a, a group of girls in Philadelphia. Um, okay. I can't think of their names that were doing a lot of background singing for gamble and them. Okay. Because once we became the Jones girls, 
you know, we didn't do as much background singing for other people. Once we got with Gamble and Huff in 79, just select people, you know, when we had the time, because, you know, with You're Gonna Make Me Love Somebody Else coming out the box being so big, we immediately, Gamble immediately sent us to uh, Ohio with Charlie Atkins, uh, who uh, put the OJs and Temptations with him. And we uh, were, we were rehearsing to go out on tour with the OJs who took wow, us you out were trained on our under Charlie tour. Atkins. Oh yes, what Ch- was Charlie that did. like? Oh man, because I know he was a taskmaster. I know he was. He was, he was, and I have two left feet, so he was always on me. He was constantly <laughs> on me because I'm not. A, I was the only one that couldn't dance. Brendan and Valerie could dance, you know, and me. I'd always try to. Well, I'm singing lead anyway. Can I just stand on? No, you cannot. You're gonna do those harmonies. You're doing them too girl <laughs> and so oh he was a test and you just just eat a banana eat a banana before you come in here to rehearsal for that potassium so you can move those feet <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> he was a drill master <laughs> no I, I heard man. I heard he's every every act that's ever worked with him oh my um, god wait what what period were you guys uh with Aretha Franklin we did the almighty fire album with her oh god Yes. Seventy six. Yes. Only only say this because the kind the kind of household I grew up in. Mm-hmm. Um, I would I grew up with three binge shoppers when it came to records. So like every week, stacks and stacks and stacks of forty five, stacks and stacks and stacks of thirty threes would come in the house. <laughs> but the thing is, is that I would get the records that my parents didn't want. So, <laughs> you know, as far as my Aretha collection, like there, there was a period like Almighty Fire, the U record, all the way up to La Diva, like basically the post Sparkle records that really weren't hitting the same. Right. I inherited. So I know all those like Sweet Passion, like all those Aretha records that weren't yeah. quite, you know, up there with the, the legacy albums. What, what was it like? Oh, God. And she was wearing that spacesuit, too. Yep, <laughs> the green space. Ah, I I remember that that period. Well, what what was it like, and how intimidating is it, you know, working with her, or was she just you know another Detroit person that you could connect with? Well, we had sang as children. Uh, at her father's church with my mother one Sunday Okay. W- when we were there. I, I believe it was one of her father's anniversary. Uh, and mm-hmm. we knew that she was going to be there at that time. She was, she was a superstar. She had respect out, you know, she was mm-hmm. like, and they said she was going to be at the church. Um, and after we performed, she came up to my mother and said, boy, those are some singing girls you got there. And then fast forward, like 15 years later, we were doing Almighty Fire. And what a lot of people don't know is that when that Sparkle movie was, uh, you know, they were looking for the actor, the actors and actresses for that movie, Aretha Franklin and Kenny Gamble wanted us to play the the sisters, sisters yeah. hired high oh Aretha put pitched in for she wanted us to do it because because of our voices and we had just sang on uh, on her album right. and Kenny felt that that would be a great we were the you know the Jones girls he felt that we were just coming out that would great be perfect promo. they sent mm-hmm. us to New York in a limo and uh, 
uh, it was, uh, I think they both were very, and I know we were disappointed, uh, especially when, uh, and you know, Aretha, she was an activist back then, especially when those girls, they, you know, was very light, bright girls that got the part. Her thing was to them was, you know, this, this is ridiculous. Those girls can, you know, they, they are, they're singers and they could be taught to be actresses too. Mm -hmm. And she, she was quite upset about that. Yes. So there was almost a chance that you could have we yeah had yeah. a chance to sparkle. Wow. Yes. <laughs> At least sing yes. the songs. Those that is crazy. You know, yeah. Yeah. Was there was there ever a background gig that you had that was like a little too intimidating or that you, you know, was just all right to you? No, we we no matter who the artist was, and there were a lot of artists that you know, hadn't even made it yet. But, you know, if we liked the song and, you know, they they were willing to pay because pay the money, you know, we mm-hmm. were um, we would do it and we would give our best. And the, the, the thing that a lot of people don't know is that for a, the, another reason why so many people liked us is because we created a lot of those backgrounds. Um, they knew that if they gave us the song, we were going to create the background parts. Oh, and it, yeah. Okay. So I mean, so you some, do the actual arrangement. Mm-hmm, some, some on some for a lot. Okay. Now, some did come with, you know, specific backgrounds, but our reputation became such that they'd be like, okay, well, hey, here's the song. What do you guys think? Well, you know, and then drop a few, Shirley. <laughs> name, name drop a Norm, few that you did. Uh, Norman Connors, mm-hmm. uh, Lou Rawls, mm-hmm. uh, who else that that we they've let us do just you know control the background god it's so many people not um, just songs but you were just like artists that were like it don't matter what song i'm doing let the jones girls come in here and, uh, and, and do and do our thing wow. now if brenda was alive because her memory is so much better than mine she 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 can remember every single everything. artist we did background on and, oh, okay. and everything but but me it gets a little fuzzy sometimes right. because when people post stuff now and i'll be like oh yeah i remember that we did do that song you know so right. so um with with signing to um philly international i'll i'll say that um probably in my opinion because you know we my dad purchased all the records and played it at the house all the time. I will say that you guys were probably given a more contemporary up-to-date sound than a lot of the acts that were on Philly International back then. Like, it was almost a thing where, you know, you knew instantly within the first two seconds that you were listening to a Philly International song based on, like, the trademark of the strings and all the mixing of the record or whatever, but, like, you're going to make me love somebody else sounded nothing like what Philadelphia, especially what was happening in 1979. Like if anything. Right. Yeah. It was like a woman telling you better get your shit together. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Yeah. So what, um, I, I mean, I, I would assume that it's still the same group of people. Like it's still Dexter Wanzel and Gamble and Huff and, all those other, well, I know McKinley Jackson also worked on the record as well, but right, like what was the discussion basically on how to present you guys and your sound? Um, that's one of the things that I think Gamble 
and Huff, they were purposely trying to take us away just a little bit for from the the um, strings and horns of like say like of what they the three, did with three degrees three degrees right. uh-huh. okay. and wanted they wanted us to be more funky more soulful more r&b and if you notice the the very first jones girls album that's exactly i mean i'm at your mercies on there which is a you know heart-wrenching uh yeah. ballad uh then of course there's you're gonna make me love somebody else uh, also like show love today there's um, yeah exactly so and it who was, can i run to yeah, yeah who can i run to that yes part. yep <laughs> what were your feelings on um of course not what your feelings are. Were you, how, how did it feel for Escape to sort of reintroduce that song to a, a whole new generation? Yeah, when I, um, when I heard it, when I first heard it, it was, what, 1995. So if, by that time, it was 16 years mm-hmm. uh, future from when we did right. it. And so many, I remember so many of the producers that when, when Gamble, back in the day, you know, you had an A side and a B side on records. Mm-hmm. And Who Can I Run To was on the B side. B side, right. And so many people did not want Gamble to put that. They said, put Show Love Today, put anything on that, on, on the B side of You're Gonna Make Me Love Somebody Else besides Who Can I Run To, because that is a, that is a single of its own. But of course, that didn't happen. So... Uh, ninth, I mean, we, you know, we were working and, and then the girls and I had broken up by then. And when we heard, um, who can I run to? I was, uh, I was happy actually, because back then when their record came out, there were so many DJs that were, you know, into new that we had done it first because people used to flip it on the mm-hmm. radio sometimes and, and play Who Can I Run To. Right. So what they would do is like, yeah, y'all, I, the, you, I know you guys love this one uh, by Escape, but guess what? Escape didn't do it first. The Jones, Then they would play our version too and have people call in which version they like the best and all of that. And uh, I happened to, uh, the girls were on a radio show some years back and they said, we hope we did a a good job we but but we just love you guys and love you all sound and and i told them i said you all did a great job because what you did was you brought back a lot of attention to the jones girls <laughs> so absolutely uh, i was i was i told them i said so hey thank you thank you all <laughs> because it brought back some attention because i mean up until you know from 16 years later mm-hmm. you know we had kind of died out like we weren't together anymore we mm-hmm. had uh, we would do some things occasionally over in europe but it was it brought back a lot of attention and put that Jones girl's name back out there. I'm wondering how Dexter and Gamble and Huff worked in a writing sense, in the sense of they writing all these these kind of like female run these songs for women. Did they ever do you ever get to say anything about a lyric? Did you ever get to say, well, eh, I don't know if she would say it like this, but she might say it like that. Or did you was it always just their words, sing it and let's go? Oh, no, it was it, they they allowed us to to put in it, you know, just like um uh, I just love the man. When when we were in the studio doing I just love the man, there was no talking up front at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Gamble kept saying, oh, "You had that, yeah, oh yeah." Gamble, well, Gamble kept saying, uh, "That's a little trademark." Right. Gamble said, "The song is great. I, I love it, but something is missing." Now, little did we know, he was in the control booth, and I was going through some things. 
uh, in my relationship with McKinley at the time. And mm-hmm. the my my sisters were, and we didn't know our mics were open. And they were oh. like, girl, they were like, girl, you we're so sick of you. And then McKinley and all this drama, you know, you just need to leave him. And you know, mama said it, and then Kenny said, That's what we need. We need that right there. <laughs> <laughs> That's wild. That's what Are we you need. Serious? I'm serious. It was and a I live mic in the studio. It was, and he just no, and he, he told, yeah, we didn't know he was listening to us. And he said, that's what we need. Mm-hmm. Take a break. Take a break. So we went in and wrote, the, <laughs> wrote you know, wrote out what we were saying. And, and that's how those um, talking parts got in there. Always be recording. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So that's how that's the first time that you did your infamous uh Shirley Jones uh yes, talking. Rap, rap right. That was an okay. error, man. People don't shit talking to me in the beginning no more. Right. And, and especially and especially with women. Yeah. Like, not not since the days of uh Barbara Mason and Right. And do it, do it, do it. Do the other woman, yeah, uh, like, yeah, or or Dorothy Moore, or you right. Know. <laughs> Amir, aren't like, you bringing back interlude culture, right? On Brexit? yes, I'm bringing good. back. Interlude. Bring it back. I, oh, I, good. Exactly. So that's I, an aspect I will bring of it back. You bring, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, y'all. You know what season it is? Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire. But when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. 
Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. At you know at at, at the time when when uh you're recording these records, I know that well you mentioned earlier that your album is more funk based instead of disco based. Was it also intentional to even though 79 was still, you know, kind of a a heavy disco tornado still happening was it sort of uh pre-planned for you guys to not lean so heavy into disco more into what i what i call boogie or or funk oh funk yes it it was um because (laughs) we kept i mean disco kind of like exploded right there with you're gonna make me love somebody else and and we would they would want us to perform in in clubs like studio 54 and all those places and we didn't really want to perform you're gonna make me love somebody else because it didn't have that that disco tempo to us we thought but mm-hmm. but it became a big disco record and right. so studio those different studios in new york and different places would have us come in but we would always tell gamble we thought it was a little slow for disco but hey they did a a a remix that was like 12 and 12 minutes long or something and and that was the disco version so that's how it became popular wait can i ask one more thing so when you guys are touring i always wanted to know this because um you guys would also or at least to me you know you would you would stack your background parts on your records and also have counterparts singing with you and always wanted to know how you guys pulled that off live when it was just three of you but then i thought well it was just the three of you then obviously you would also have to have background singers for you guys as well and was that how you handled it but no no we did really when we would conduce it down for for stage we would take the 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 heavy the the parts that we know people wanted to hear right and it was the hardest thing for me because I'm the top note and, and, I, and I was singing lead and then having to jump back. That's why now where I travel, I have three background singers that I have trained that have been with me for 10 years. And they know all the, the, the I call them my, my little Jones girls because they know all our parts and everything, and which frees me up to be able to do my thing vocally. But oh, wondered. it was so hard but because we always insisted on doing our own backgrounds. We didn't want to have anybody else on the side doing doing our. And the only time we kind of got away from it, we had a, a, a female MD, Myra, that played keyboards, and she would sing my top note. She was with us for maybe almost a year, and that I was able to really get into my leads and stuff then when she was our MD. But that was only for about a year. <laughs> wow. Okay. I always wanted to know that because, like. Again, you guys are so intricate with the the, yeah. the, the Jones girl sound of, of stacking. Right. That I was like, well, if it's three of them, you know, on stage, then I know there has to be an additional three voices to help all those counterparts that are swimming around in the song as well. No, but we, we, wow. we because of the insistence of us never wanting anybody to to do our backgrounds and Charlie Atkins, he was like, no, because and you have know, you they, dancing too, <laughs> yeah, and have us dancing and then you know and then um they back in the day we just didn't want it we didn't want any background singers we wanted people to to hear us and 
we because we practiced i mean 24 7 and especially when we were on the road we'd be in there practicing right before the right before hitting the stage just to make sure that mm -hmm. everybody's voices were on you know on top of what's because of what we were getting ready to do so another question i have is because there's so many writing teams at gamble and huff mm -hmm. how 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 are the decisions made on who you're going to work with like do you guys say hey we we like what cynthia has for us so let's work with cynthia dexter or it's like mcfadden whitehand like there's so many teams there how do you we had a and in fact it's it was so impressive when our first day we took that elevator up on three the creek that that little creaky elevator up mm -hmm. on three now 309 and they gave nine broad street broad street they I, they I went to elementary school right next door at performing arts at oh, 313 yeah, broad street, right so. okay right up the street yes uh, yeah yeah uh, <laughs> and um they gave us a schedule Everybody had little office offices with a keyboard and a recorder. They gave mm -hmm. us a schedule like from from 10 to 12, we were going to be with Dexter and Cynthia from uh, that take and then take lunch. And then from two to four, we'd be with McFadden and Whitehead. Uh, and then from six to, to eight, we would be with Joe Jefferson, Charlie Boy Simmons, uh, the guys that did Who Can I Run To? Then uh, every every uh, writer and producer got a chance to submit their songs within those two hours. And then the next day the schedule would start all over again because it was so many of them. And, mm -hmm. then of the, and then of course, also during that time, we would, uh, Gamble and Huff had written their songs and we would get with everybody and we would do little demos of the ones that we liked, uh, you know, that we mm -hmm. wanted to do. And then that's how we would, um, choose which ones were going to be recorded. We sit down with Gamble and Huff at the end of the week and they say, well, which, this, we think you all should do this one, this one, this one. Can you tell us um, what was the, the, I really don't know. Like I always seen Cynthia Biggs's names on every credit yes. forever, but she's probably the only Philly luminary that I've yet to meet or, and met I, or knew about. Yes. And I tell her all the time, she to me is the most underrated writer. Yes. Because she's like a Carol King to me. That girl, because yes. oh my God, yes. yes. I mean, love TKO, if only you knew. Yeah. Living all alone. Yes. I mean, she, I mean like all, all the songs. I mean, are... all of her songs are such classics. And you know, a lot of people don't don't realize that, you know, because, of course, she was writing partner with Dexter Wanzel, but everybody know Dexter. He took all the right. He uh, took all the, right, exactly. Right, the sign, right. But when she was telling us how she went to the library to study the, the Egypt during the time of writing mm -hmm. um, of writing Nights Over Egypt, because she wanted to make sure that she was lyrically writing to that time period i knew then i'm like this girl you know and, yes, and i've gone yeah life. and i've gone on to to do uh demos for her on so many beautiful absolutely beautiful songs that mm -hmm. um didn't come out but i mean she's incredible an absolutely incredible writer and y'all still speak Shirley? so you know where she, like where is she oh she's in philadelphia yeah, she yeah yeah. yeah we gotta find her. Yeah, man. we'll find yes. her. I, I wanna, oh, I, I can grill. I can get you in touch with her. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. yeah. 
Yeah, because she's she's written written way too many hits. There's there's the one uh, song. Um, yeah, there's one song I've always always been curious about. On your second record, on uh, on a on a piece with woman, there's a yes. song called "Let's Celebrate." Mm-hmm. Sitting on now, top of the world, yeah. Right. So the thing is, is that I know on the writer's credit that I saw both Lou Rawls and Teddy Pendergrass's name wow. in the writer's credit. <laughs> yeah, they put. I think. How they does put. <laughs> how what was that writing session like? Like, was that real or was that a typo or? I think because uh, Cynthia Cause and Cynthia Dex- Biggs, Dexter right, Dexter Wanzell, Lou Rawls think, and Teddy Pendergrass. I think that was. Uh, to be honest with you. In fact, I, I'm almost sure God, they put like a, a lyric or two in there and one, you know, and because of their name at the time. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, they they put, you know, a few few little few of the lyrics in there. Oh, I.e. Dinah Ross. Right. Jackson 5, I right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Writer's room bureaucracy. You know how right. it goes. <laughs> but exactly. it's just so unusual to see. It's so random, like. Wait, I I can't imagine Lou Rawls, <laughs> Teddy Pendergrass, <laughs> right? A legal pad room. at a piano, right? Yeah. Now that's themselves. just that's just like Cynthia wrote um, "Love TKO," but but uh, Teddy, I think Teddy's name got on there oh too, God. or no, we Gamble's to name getting the Gamble's and name. Gamble's name and Womack and Womack. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no. oh no, we gotta find Cynthia. This ain't. Yeah, we gotta oh, find yeah. Cynthia. Big. Yeah. yeah, I, I definitely. Um, I, Layla, I'll send you her uh, number. I, I, well, I, I'm gonna get in contact with her first because yeah, let her know we haven't spoken for a while. But yeah, yeah, I will. Yeah, and get and get you her number and her information. She uh, would, we would love, love to do it. Yes, we would love that. Okay, yeah, I was gonna say, you know, probably when when the smoke clears, I would say that the average Jones girl fan will always put Nights Over Egypt as their almost their top song. Yes. yes which was so unusual at the time. Yes. So, like <laughs> what how, it, it's how, amazing. What's the genesis of the song and how did it wind up in your hands? Well it wound up in our hands. Dexter and Cynthia presented it to us and we actually ended up court recording it thanks to my baby sister, Valerie, because Brenda and I did not want to do the song. We thought it was too jazzy and coming behind. I just love the man and you're going to make me love somebody else. We thought it was too jazzy. So we sat down and uh, we had a comment. It was like Brenda, Valerie, myself, Dexter and Cynthia. And we said, well, I said, because I said, the music is just all it's so different. It's so different. And Dexter said, yes, it is. And so then Valerie said, so it's beautiful. She said, so what we should do is do a different type of back of singing on, on it and and we're like what Valerie and so we after talking she said why not have no lead singer but you know how you mom always said let's let let the unisons and harmonies be a lead and then yeah. with me and Brenda and I said hello and then Dexter and Cynthia said hey that's that's interesting let's let's try that we went in the studio two takes after rehearsing, Brenda and Valerie and I got together and we did we decided where we were gonna do the unison, where we were gonna do the harmonies. Two takes it took us and it was done. I knew then that that was a special song because mm-hmm. a lot of the other songs, like You Gonna Make Me Love Somebody Else and Who Can right. I Run To, it took more takes than than two to get it right to the point right. of where everybody felt comfortable that this was a hit. But it was just two takes with Nights Over Egypt. Wow. 
yeah, yeah. I, I for me like that's like yeah and know. it's amazing too because it was actually the third single valerie's also the one that said that should be the first single uh and uh, but during that time gamble and huff always had to have the first single on the jones girls and it had just become but valerie she was so upset Nights Over Egypt should be the first single yeah. off of that Get As Much Love As You Can album. And it actually came off as a third single. And that's only because Quiet Storm just forgot about uh, Finally Found That Man of Mine and Get As right. Much Love As You Can singles. And they everybody across the country just started playing Nights Over Egypt. Did you say Quiet Storm? Too. Yeah, <laughs> Quiet a Storm whole, Radio. Was there ever a debate about that intro? Like, y'all, <laughs> was there ever a debate like, this is way too long. We need to come in soon. Was it, or did, from the moment you heard the intro, you were like, all right, that makes, I mean, I know you thought it was crazy when you first heard it, but when y'all all came together <laughs> for the song. Uh-huh. No, we, we, we were, I mean, we were grooving off of it. And, intro, and <laughs> but the breakdown, you know, when I do it on stage, the first time I tried to yeah, do it. I was about it, to say, that must be your nightmare for your band. Uh, oh, my if God. If they're when, not familiar. <laughs> oh, and I've. I've and they got to get it right. They, they have to get, get it right. right. And then right. when I when I cut it down to, um, you know, to take out the instrumental part. Oh, my God. They would all uh-huh. like, no, you no, can't take the instrumental. No, 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 well, they, no. This gives us, a, you know. <laughs> that prepares so I, <laughs> so that I had intro. to. Oh man, I but I've let keyboard players go auditioning yes. for me because they couldn't get it. They they could not get it right. It has to be <laughs> right. They would do everything. <laughs> like and, and Dexter would laugh. I said, Dexter, that, that when when keyboard players audition, if they don't get it, they're out of there. I can't. Uh, don't try to remix it. Don't try to make right. It. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That turnaround, I yes. yeah, I got, I can hear you, your bands right now sweating, through, <laughs> looping that, looping right. that intro over and over and over again. Yep. I do not want to be the MD for that particular show. Right. Uh, All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, 
their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Varian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. In in 83, you guys made a, a curious move. Okay, for starters, can you explain... Because you're probably the first Philly international artist that we've had pre-81 on the show. Can you explain to me how the after effect of Teddy Pendergrass's car accident affected the entire label? Because I can only assume that there was a slow implosion of Philly international after 82 because... Most acts will half the acts will leave the label a year later. Right. Um, of course, you know, the signature gamble and huff sound, even though Patty LaBelle sort of kept the the lights on, if you will. Right. Um, pretty much, you know, every act was was going elsewhere, uh, you know, to, to figure the eighties out. So did did his accident actually have an effect on the entire label as far as it being a label, being operational, as far as in the eyes of what well, I know that Clive Davis wasn't running Philly International at, at the end of, of uh, its run. He, he signed the label to, to Columbia in, in 73. But yeah, what, what was just what was the, the general atmosphere of the label in late 82 post accident? Yeah, that- yeah, that accident was, uh, that was, it, it affected the label because, I mean, Teddy, Teddy was the, he was the, the hot guy, you know, he was the main, the main success at that point. And I right. mean, we were, we were doing okay. The OJs, I think they were getting ready to leave if they hadn't already left. And right. I think Billy Paul had left or was in the process of leaving um and things were just changing i mean disco by this time was just taken it had taken over everything and and gamble and huff were still writing basic uh r&b you know the Mm -hmm. that that sound um so it affected it to the point where i think that was when when philly international really started um going down and Mm -hmm. we of course um we weren't sure if kenny was going to Resign us and we were having a lot of internal by this time we were having a lot of internal problems group my sisters and i just as sisters yes as sisters and um well that's one question i didn't ask 
how how do you guys navigate as a group as business partners but also you know as i mean your sisters at the you know at the end of the day so it's almost like you you don't have an option to not to go to bed angry about something or yeah we didn't for for a long time everything was fine um but then after the second album we it it became you know more and more uh pronounced certain mm-hmm. certain things that that we were dealing with internally and and uh we decided that's uh and a lot of it was over who was going to who was going to be lead singer yeah. i was going to say how hard oh was it for oh you yeah. to cuz i know the whole thing like let's all be unison but at the end of the day it's like yeah. someone at the label has to be like look y'all we're well, going to have to focus on somebody here. So well, who see, is it? Well, see, what happened was when we went into Gamble and Huff, my sisters were so used to all of us sharing lead and everything. But Gamble and Huff was, had, to, had to sit Brenda down in particular because there had always been this thing that she felt she should be the lead singer. But after uh, the first album and the success of uh, that first album, Kenny had to tell Brenda that he said, now every group has a signature voice now. And we feel that the most commercial signature voice for the Jones girls is Shirley. So yes, we're going to, we're going to, you know, have you do some songs, but the bulk of the songs we want, we want Shirley to do. And uh, that was always an issue between Brenda and I. Um, mm-hmm. And that, that was the main cause of us breaking up for the final time. Yes. Mm-hmm. On the, uh, the, the third album, not the third album, the, um, the fourth album on target, I know that you guys went to RCA. What what caused the the split from Philly International in '83? We, we weren't sure that he was going to sign us, and Brenda uh, became friends with Robert Wright, who's now deceased, and and Fonzie Thornton. Um, Robert was the great over, Fonzie Thornton. Yes, yeah. my Fonzie, yeah. and he um, Robert Wright and Fonzie got together and. Robert was the head of RCA at that point, mm-hmm. and he and Brenda had become friends. And I think he had kind of told her, you know, to, that she it would be more equal li- um, leads distribution. <laughs> yeah. Right. So we got over there, and the same situation happened once. Once they would hear my voice on the songs that Fonzie and Robert wrote, they wanted mm-hmm. me. And that set up a, a issue between Brenda and Robert and me. And then, you know, right. and that's why it was just that one album. But the interesting thing is, is that we had an album in the can at Philly International that Kenny Burke had done called Keep It Coming. The and Keep It Coming album, yeah. Yeah, and he, okay. Gamble, released that. And that album, he released that like three months after RCA, I think. And right. that album did better than the On Target album. Right. <laughs> so, and then, and then from there, uh, that's when the group broke up totally, you know. And, and then I Gamble called me to come back to do my solo project. Yeah, I know I know that um, oftentimes, and, you know, it's it's always like the similar to the the supreme situation where it's like sometimes the best singer or the most 
the best singer or the best voice or the strongest voice, whatever, it doesn't mean the most commercial voice. And a lot of times people don't, you know, I, th- I think people understand in hindsight. Yes. Like, and years I, after the fact. After the fact. And I would tell Brenda all the time, Brenda has that really mid-tone tones mm-hmm. in her voice, but she could also sing very high, but her voice is so full. And I used to tell her, you have a beautiful voice. You could just, you know, do do the songs that they that they put, like oh, I Close My Eyes on one of the albums she's doing, mm-hmm. and uh-uh, uh-uh, on that Keep It Coming album. You can hear the tones in her voice that were just rich. And that that's why I couldn't understand why she just always 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 it was such a battle too even when i the uh for unsung when kenny and i were talking about when he was getting ready to do his own song part he said you know i never thought brenda liked me when after after i sat down and told you all that that it was your voice <laughs> oh you think <laughs> he said, he said I, I don't think she ever really liked me i said well kenny i don't think she liked me either and i was her sister but because right. so i that was a hard conversation that he did, but he had to have it. it. So yeah. I'm, I'm curious too, though, because you guys have been singing since you guys were little. You've been in, and with your mom, was there ever any conversations to help prevent these kind of moments? Like, listen, girls, they're gonna try to break you up, or listen, girls, somebody may say she this. did. She did. My mom did, and we. I mean, we were the best of friends. Uh, we never. Uh, fought because she always said don't fight yeah i mean you know verbally we would go at each other but we would never physically because you know we we weren't raised in that kind of environment but um both of my sisters which runs in our family both had serious alcohol problems okay that developed uh with valerie it started you know with the ending part with Diana Ross. And we found out about that a little later, but then with both of them, once we, really after that, once that first Jones Girls record, it just became more and more prevalent. And that, and and then the the jealousy issues as far as leading is what broke broke the group up and is what uh, killed both of my sisters, alcohol. Wow. Well, Brenda was struck by three cars, but it was because as far as I, as far as I know, all I know mm-hmm. is that the police officers that, that, that had seen told me that that day, earlier in the day, right. they had seen her walking down the street crying in Dover, Delaware, and they took her back to her hotel, and told her, they they said she let them in and everything, and they told her please, you know, stay in your room, contact your daughter, but don't go back out. And uh, I told them, I God, I wish they had had my number or something at that time because she was not going to stay in that room, right. Right. you know. Um, mm-hmm. So that that that's what um, that's what happened there in in 2017 with her, Valerie, uh, in tw- in 2001. Mm-hmm. Uh, she had she had just said that she was not going to. She was she wanted my mom to check her in because she was tired and she really wanted she knew that Brenda and I were talking about maybe doing something together with her again in, in mm-hmm. 2001 and she had just said well Monday I want you to take me um and she died from you know from her liver um oh man 
Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that yeah. conversation we had about the Olympics and people taking mental breaks. Oh, yeah. Totally different to you. Oh, mental health. And that, yeah. and that's why I, I, um, I told the people from Unsung, you know, they did a great job of telling the story because both of my sisters, the, the drinking and and then the, the the Brenda's in Brenda's case taking those op opioids because uh, to to just kill the pain she was constantly in pain she said and instead of getting the help that she needed it, but but uh, with her it I was constantly telling her Brenda you're in pain because you really don't need more alcohol or mm -hmm. another pill you need to go talk to somebody and she I said come you know come talk to me come come you know we could talk but she she wasn't ready she wasn't ready to admit what was happening and you know she's no longer here because of it and then her both of her daughters were in denial too and I told them I said you guys are the only ones that could physically take her somewhere to get help and they refused to do it wow yeah man that's important like Oh, you have to, and it's because mentally, uh, like, you know, this pandemic, this year and a half of just being in the house has almost driven me crazy, but I have a firm foundation. You know, I got my grand, I got three grandbabies, little ones, a seven month old and two, three year olds that, you know, they, they give me all the life that you to, to want to keep living, to want to stay out there. Exactly. Yeah. That's important. Um, were you, like, so were you able at all to just have sort of a, a, a moment of reconciliation with them after, after the group oh, yeah. imploded? And, and, yeah. And okay. even, um, I want to say before Valerie passed, she, we, we, she and I were, we were on good terms because of the boys. We both have sons okay. that, that are both in the music business and they just, they got an EPK out now doing, uh, six of our songs hip-hop style Cameron right. and uh Cameron and PJ and then with Brenda thank God we had she and I had not spoken oh about for about three or four years and right 2016 we started speaking again and talking and 2017 um, the year that she passed, it was April 3rd of 2017. She was mm -hmm. coming. I was doing uh, Essence. Mary J. Blige had gotten me on the Essence Music Festival. Oh, and wow. I had just told her, Diana was there the night before. And she said, Shirley, why don't we go? I'll meet you there. And we'll go backstage and say hi to Diana. Wow. And I said, okay. I said, and don't be surprised if I bring you up on stage to perform with me uh, mm -hmm. the next night. I said, so are you ready? She says, yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready. Um, but uh, she says, so I'm going to meet you there. I said, I'm, I, but she, I knew she was still having issues, but I felt that if she, if I could get her there, that would help, you know, encourage her, especially to, yeah, you know, to, to see the love that people mm -hmm. have for the group. Right. Uh, but yeah, that night before she passed, we had just talked and I said, okay, now I'm, I'm getting ready to get your plane ticket so you could fly. Cause she was in, she was in, uh, I didn't know. I thought she was in New York, but she was in Dover, Delaware with her daughter. Uh, and she says, all right, well, I said, so I'm gonna call you tomorrow and give you the plane information. And then 11 o'clock that morning, um, is when I got the phone call that she oh, had wow. been hit by three cars. So, yeah. Man. Yeah. Oh, it's, wow. uh, 
But, wow. you know, I, I, I feel them every time I'm on stage, every time I'm in the studio, and I be laughing sometimes because I, I hear Valerie drilling me, talking about, Shirley, that, that note is a little sharp. You need to come down or, and, you know, <laughs> or, or Brenda cracking some kind of joke. So that's, that's one of the reasons. It's the, my therapy is continuing the legacy and, and uh, singing, you know, singing and performing for the audiences. Keeping the spirit alive. Yes, yes. absolutely. Um, can I ask what? What did it feel like when you struck out on your own and, and finally got your number one song? Oh man! With uh, "Do You Get Enough Love?" <laughs> yeah, I was. Uh, you talking about excited because uh, we had never had a number one. We had had like a number three and number five, you know, mm -hmm. but we had never had a number one. And when they called me and told me that it had went to number one. Uh, I was like, oh, my God, you don't, you can't. And I was in Chicago on my way up to do an interview for Jet magazine. Right. And uh, once we got up there is when they, Kenny called to say, you got the number one record girl. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, and we, I think because I think us and Sweet Love had been battling uh, yeah. going up. And then uh, it stayed there for a couple of weeks. And I was happy, so happy about that. Now, the first performance was scary because I called myself I I went back to Charlie Atkins and and he said, well, let's just take it. <laughs> just you, alone. <laughs> <laughs> you, 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 you don't have to dance now, baby. You, you, but, I, but I decided to have um, two guys and a girl so that to take away from the Jones girls as background singers. Right. And he, he put a terrific show together on uh, uh, the first night. I was so scared. It was in, in D.C. at Constitution Hall. I was with Mays. And yeah, and I was in D.C. And it was, you know, I was like, I don't know how people are going to accept, you know, the two guys and a girl and me, especially when I'm doing most of the songs. I mean, were jo I had to do Jones Girl stuff because Do You Get Enough Love was the only thing I had had. And right. when I... um when I did it, when I did it, at getting ready to leave my hotel room, they brought up uh, like two dozen yellow roses from Diana Ross. And, and oh. she said, get it. Go get them, girl. <laughs> Number one. And I and oh, I, so awesome. I, yeah, I, you know, and I was it made me feel so good uh, just to go out there and perform. And, and I did. I did good. I, I mean, I, I toured with them for seven months. So <laughs> that made tour. Yeah, I did good. <laughs> I, I guess in closing, I'll ask like, what, what do you, what do you want, or 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 is there uh, sort of like a a bucket list achievement that you you've yet to do that you would like to do, or what is it in the legacy of the Jones Girls do you want the world to know? I want the world to know that the Jones Girls recognize and realize that we were blessed with three absolutely beautiful voices that blended so well together mm -hmm. and we knew that and we also worked and practiced and practiced and practiced for that sound and the reason why we practiced for that sound was to bring people the most beautiful harmonic music that at the end of the day at the end of the show at the end of the record they could they would say wow they would feel 
uplifted, they would feel enlightened, and they would just feel joy and would just smile because that was the goal for me and my sisters. And my goal now, no matter what I do, I just want when I'm performing, all I want to do at the end of the day is for people to smile and say, man, we had a great time with that Jones Girls experience. <laughs> so that's it. Well, that's beautiful. I that's had a beautiful. great time, yeah. but this you're not going to mess Thank well, you. We I'm thank sold. you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank well, you. We we thank you for your music and and your your talent and you know and your your sisters as well and your your family. Yeah, and, oh, and uh, you know you. upholding the upholding the uh, the the sound of Philadelphia, my hometown, yes, and representing yes. Detroit. Yes, you that know? Philly sound, man. Uh, some it. some someone uh, one of my fans said, Mo Motown music had my mind. Philadelphia music has my soul and soul. my spirit. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, there's a, that's there's, so there's the true. mic drop for you right there. Well, <laughs> on behalf of Shirley Jones, this is Questlove. And uh, on behalf of Sugar Steve and Unpaid Bill, Fontigolo and Laia, we thank you uh, for another great episode of Questlove Supreme. Uh, we will see you guys on the next go around. Thank, thank, thank you. Thank you all. Thank all right. you. Bye bye. Yo, what's up? This is Fonte. Make sure you keep up with us on Instagram at QLS and let us know what you think and who should be next to sit down with us. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. All right. Peace. Much Love Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection, and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.